0: So, hi, my name's Nicole. I'm Sugar Addict Bulimic. Uh, Thank you, uh, Berto, for inviting me to uh, speak. Um, I've been thinking about uh, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And I kind of want to approach it a little bit differently. And I'll explain why I'm going to do that. Um, I have been in recovery um, uh, since 1993. OA... Uh, was not my first program, I came into OA in 1998. So I have been in a while. And um, because I've been in a long time, I don't even sponsor newcomers anymore, because I'm so far away from that beginning experience. I sponsor people who have actually already gone through the steps, and they want to go deeper. Um, and so it's, I didn't plan to do that. It's just kind of what happened. And um, so uh, I want to think about the what it was like, um, not in the traditional sense. You can hear that from other people. Um, so there's plenty of that out there. Uh, you know, I, in, in short, I would say food got me out of bed in the morning. Um, but I think that talking about my weight and my eating habits um, is very limiting to what it was like. Um what it was like was that uh I grew up in an alcoholic home and somewhere at a very young age I just disconnected emotionally. I was like I remember at 4 years old deciding I'm not going to cry anymore. I remember at 13 years old gathering up all of my documents, my photos, everything, putting them in a box so that at any moment if I needed to leave I could leave. And I always want to say that and I was in a middle class environment because a lot of times when I tell my story, people sort of associate that with some sort of lower working class like wife beater, or whatever. And I'm like, no, this happened in a Martha Stewart home. Um, and, you know, there's a, a, a disease that is very particular around, you know, Uh, the classes, whether it's working class, middle class, upper classes, that things look a little different. And the higher you go up the classes, you know, you're supposed to be so grateful that you're in that class. Um, And so it doesn't matter what else is going on around you. Um, You live in a nice house, you wear nice clothes, you get to go to, you know, a nice school. And I'm like that, you know, that's what I heard was like, I didn't have any right to be unhappy, because I was supposed to be so lucky. Um, so that's why I like to kind of point that out. But what it was like was is that I learned to disassociate and uh, and food helped me do that. Food helped me so that um, when I had a feeling, I ate. So basically, I learned how to emotionally regulate myself and comfort myself solely through the use of, of food. That was how... I took care of myself emotionally. I didn't go to anyone else because I was in an environment that there was no one else to go to. Also, um, I didn't really have a reason, you know, it was pretty grim, right? Like and on the outside and at school I was performing and I was, you know, trying to pass as a normal kid, even though I knew I wasn't. And the other thing that food helped me do is, uh, sugar specifically, is that um, it helped me escape the present moment, which is a great way of just saying dissociate. So I wasn't ever fully present in the moment. I was the minimal amount present that I needed to be. And, And so food helped me do that disconnect. So... What it was like was that I was very disassociated from my own life because quite frankly, I felt that I had been dealt a very raw deal and I didn't want to play the part that life had cast me. And I always use the analogy of like it's like everyone showed up at a casting call for the production of life and I got this role to play this girl, you know, young, you know, and I was like, and the circumstances and where everything, I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't like what's happening here. And the only way I could say no, uh, was to disconnect emotionally from the people around me and disassociate from any experience that I was having and food helped me do that. Food helped me disassoci- or disconnect from people around me because, you know, as a human being, I need, I actually am wired socially and biologically and psychologically to need people. And I'm needing people who are not consistently there for me because of their own alcoholism or I'm needing people who then wanna exploit my need because of their narcissism. So needing people, I quickly learned, is a very dangerous thing to do. So what it was like was this intense self-sufficiency and this distrust of authority figures because the authority figures in my home, they were in charge but somehow their rulings did not benefit me and my development. They benefited me in terms of food, clothing, shelter, and I will always be grateful for that, but they didn't benefit me in terms of how do you have feelings? How do you like yourself? How do you have interpersonal relationships? How do you go through um struggles and triumphs how do you do life how do you do life in a way that you find joy how do you make friends to sustain friends how do you get into an argument without getting abusive i you know none of my neither one of my parents were taught that so they didn't have that to teach me so disconnecting and isolating while being in the room was how i learned to survive so then i go out in the world and the one thing i want more than anything in the world is love to be loved to love and to be loved and so i fall in love it blows up in my face because i have no tools for living and that's what prompted me to initially get into adult children of alcoholics uh, Cause I wanted to know what happened. I got the one thing that I had been fantasizing about—reading books about, romance novels, you know, watching movies about—was like, and I had left home with like, okay, I got shafted over here, but I'm not getting the quote-unquote love that I need growing up. So what I'm go- so what I held on to as hope was my love story and i was young and i thought like everyone gets a love story everyone's gonna find their person and fall in love and live happily ever after that's certainly what was in all the books that's what you know is in all the movies that's what everyone gets fed you know what i mean and i just held on to that so then when i was 20 you know and that happened i was like oh okay finally i thought love was like this magical power that would make everything all right. And that if you were in love, which we were, that that was enough. That you just needed to be in love and that love would be strong enough to overcome any difficulties. Now, the fact that neither one of us also having grown, you know, both of us having grown up in alcoholic, dysfunctional, emotionally violent household had absolutely no skills, you know, to create a safe, loving relationship that's mutually supportive and not an intradependent, not codependent. The fact that none of us had the skills for that, somehow we had this magical thinking that being in love with each other would make that happen. Also, I had this magical thinking that, all of this disassociating and food addiction and, you know, some drug addiction. I I kind of question using the word addiction because I was in high school and I was in college. And also it's like I could stop doing drugs anytime I wanted because I had the food. I was like, let me show you how much I'm not addicted. Take it. I'm fine. Give me my food. So I really, food addiction is definitely my my prime uh my uh primary program. So anyway, so that the love didn't, you know, so not having any skills, and and that all of that disconnected, disassociated behavior. I didn't know how to tell my partner how I was feeling. I didn't know how to healthily express um anger. I didn't know how to not emotionally manipulate. I didn't know how to guilt trip. I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to do anything different than what I had seen in my family, and certainly in my extended family. So when I fell in love into my relationship, um, that was exactly what I did. And that blew up in my face. And the relationship ended. And that is what I call a bottom I, I don't call it a bottom is when you lose or are about to lose something that means more to you than your addictive behavior, whatever that is. So I did. I lost the thing that was going to make up for all the pain in my life and the one thing that I wanted. And that propelled me into um, recovery. And even though there's like a six-year gap between me coming in for ACOA in 1998, I honestly, I don't think I could have done OA in 1993. I I don't think I could have. I needed to go in and understand what the fuck happened here. I didn't know what my story was in 1993. I didn't know what my parents did was alcoholism. I didn't know that not everyone drank a glass of or a bottle of wine and a six pack of beer every day, but because it was, um, uh, because it was expensive, you know, they weren't alcoholics, they were foodies. So um, anyway, and then so when I did come in in 1998, I knew my story. And now I was left with, okay, Nick, you know, your story. You know how you got here. You've spent six years really unpacking it, still trying to, you know, have another relationship and finding that you're always in the same one. I think it's time we address the food. So what happened is, is that I got 12-stepped into OA and that became my journey in terms of getting emotionally sober. Um, It's been a very long journey. Very long I came in in the beginning and it was very much I was very much like What a newcomer is I'm not unique in this which is I thought this is a free weight watchers You know what I mean? I was like, okay And the only reason why I thought that is because I didn't know any differently I I didn't know you know what I mean? Like I just thought this was a free weight watchers and I was like okay um, I'm going to go to these meetings and I went to one meeting a week. You know what I mean? I started tracking all of my food, you know, um, and I started talking to my spot. I got a sponsor. I started talking to her every day about what I ate and she kept trying to tell me this is not about the food. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's all about the food that makes no sense to me, you know, and she tried and she tried and it, and my process was very slow. Part of that was, that I again, like I said, I came in not trusting authority. And I came in kind of like, I didn't really know. I'm not, I'm not submissive. And I'm not a follower. So it it, I'm much more teachable now. But at the time, I really wasn't. So it took me going to meetings and meetings and meetings. And I was abstinent. I think in the beginning, I had my pink cloud abstinence, because And I had it for eight months because, to be honest, I think anyone can do a diet for eight months. And that's what I was on, you know. And it was when all of a sudden it just kept going that, you know, it wasn't like eight months graduate that um, I then started, my food started getting slippery. And then I started to get that it wasn't about the food. I didn't know what to do with that, but I started to get it. But I was still very resistant. Um, I was a good little twelve stepper. I mean, not twelve stepper. I was a good little OA'er. I went to meet. I did. I checked all the boxes because I'm a very good student. Also, I was like, I'm very into independent study. So I was like, yeah, I had a sponsor in name, but I'm actually going to study this myself. Thank you. Um, and so. Uh, I want to say for anyone in the rooms, like some people come in, they don't lose any weight. They do the work and the work can take a really long time. And then once they kind of do the work and start to feel emotionally safe within themselves, then they start to lose the weight. Some people come in, they lose the weight right away. You know what I mean? And now they've got to live like in a body that they're not familiar with, but yet have always wanted And then they start to do the emotional work on the inside while they, and then there there's me who I came in and I lost 10 pounds every two years. And it was a very slow process. And for me, the reason why it was a slow process was because I relied on being in a bigger body to make myself feel safe. And so for me to start to lose weight, um, that was a big deal for me. It was a big deal to feel safe in a smaller body. Also, I gained all my weight when I was uh, in junior high because all of a sudden the game changed from tomboy to boy-girl stuff and I was just not prepared for puberty at all. And so I gained my weight to desexualize my body. Also, I I added weight because my dad was, um, There was a a history of domestic violence in the family and my dad would posture. I want to make it clear that my dad never hit me, hit my mom. He did punch walls, you know, when we were, when I was younger, which was a way of saying, this is how I feel about you. This is what I want to do to your face. So, you know, being, being bigger was a way of also feeling emotionally, uh, physically safe in the world. So for me to lose that weight, i had to do the emotional work behind it and i the way that i kind of explain it is that every bite of food that i took that was had an emotion attached to it that i then stored in my body until my body got bigger um and bigger and bigger i i couldn't release that fat cell until i had processed the emotion that i had eaten over in that fat cell You know what I mean? Like, it's literally like if you had written little notes to yourself around all the feelings that you're having, then you crumpled them up, you know, these little notes, and then you stuffed it in a big, big garbage bag. You know, you don't get to just for me, I didn't get to just dump the whole garbage bag and be like, "Woo, I'm free. I had to take every note out, read it. And then go through the experience of having those feelings and connecting to someone. So I'm having to learn how to have the feeling and then emotionally regulate those feelings in a healthy, loving manner through connection to another person. It's either my sponsor or it was my therapist. You know, sometimes it was uh, a fellow, although the fellows didn't thing didn't really happen. I at this point, I'm getting up to my first major relapse. I'm attending away like I'm attending a class. My sponsor is my professor. I'm going and I'm doing all the homework assignments. And in terms of people in the rooms, we're all taking a class together. So they're classmates. But that's as far as our relationship's going to go you know, I'll see you in the meeting, you know, hi, I'm so happy to see you here, you look great, whatever, outside of the meeting, no. Now, I did make program calls, because we were supposed to, and, but again, it was a program call, I wasn't going to talk to you like a friend, I was just like, and I would call people back in the day for people who, you know, our listen may be hearing this later, and listen, it's like, You know, we didn't text anyone, we didn't have that. You had to call someone, and then I would call someone and say, this is Nicole from the Saturday night meeting, I'm making a program call, do you have time for a call? And they would say yes or no. I would talk about the specific thing that was going on, they would say "Say something, you know, profound, like one day at a time. And then I would, you know, hang up, and if they weren't, if they said no, I would just go down the list. Everyone had a list of numbers that we would just call. So that all happened. Now, what happened for me, and I don't want to scare anyone, but, you know, again, we've got, you know, a hundred, we've got like a million people in OA. That means there are a million different ways to work this program and a million different experiences that you can have in program. My experience was when I lost all the weight, I had trauma memories surface. And I already had molestation memories you know what I mean I already had like babysitter try to do stuff and another babysitter try to do stuff I already had that so I I was not happy to discover more so when I had lost all the weight all of a sudden I started having these really intense trauma memories and then I had to go through this huge process around unpacking that and getting little pieces at the time to put together a picture and then in 2006 The picture sort of formed Uh, my who my perpetrator was, was was it was a family member, which was a heartbreak. And I just I lost it. I like and at that time also I had been doing 36 years of uh, adrenalizing, which I didn't realize I was doing by working and overworking and doing all of this stuff. And also the just the PTSD, which I didn't know that I had. That's why I was so into sugar and white flour, because it would calm my system down. So I was medicating my body that was hyper adrenalizing because I was growing up, I didn't have one single incident happen. I did have incidences that happened and i was growing up in a very unpredictable environment so those two things together are called complex ptsd so my body was running adrenaline at a very high rate so i was dependent on sugar and i was dependent on white flour to calm my system down so that i could function in the world so part of my story also was you know getting on medication so that i could because once you put the food down you i i discovered like how high my adrenaline was running and my insomnia and stuff like that. So I needed to go to a medical professional and give me something that could deal with my physical body on a biological level so that I could stop using food and substances as a way to medicate myself. So in 2006, when uh, the trauma memory surfaced, um, at that point I had... I had lost all my weight, I was down to an 8'10", and like I said, I'm 5'7", and, um, and I, I, when, when the trauma memory surfaced where I, I figured out or I put together who my perpetrator was, that was so devastating to me that I lasted about a month and then I went into a full-blown relapse. Because at that point, keep in mind, the solution for our recovery is a higher power. And I, um, I'm not Christian, I'm not any ethical monotheist, I'm a spiritualist, I believe in some sort of divine consciousness, which I like to call love, and when I tap into that, amazing things happen. But it's my job to work to be able to tap into that and then follow the current of love wherever it takes me. So that's my qualifier there. But at that point, I was sort of faking it till you make it. I was just like, okay, I believe in something, whatever. Well, the problem is, is that because I had intellectually decided what what my higher power was going to be, when that happened, at 13 years in recovery for me, so 1993 to 2006, I felt completely betrayed by recovery. I felt like, you've got to fucking be kidding me. I did all this work to lose all this weight to uncover trauma. This is this is the fucking prize well let me tell you that is exactly how i felt and i was very angry and the answer is yes nicole this is the prize this is what has been chaining you to fear and until we uncover this and until we look at it and heal it You can be in the rooms for the rest of your fucking life going to therapy six times a week and you will always be chained by fear. And everything that you want in life, love, friends, family, you will not be able to have because the shame and the fear will prevent you from it. So this is the prize, the blockage in your heart that we are now going to excavate. I know it sucks, Nicole. I know that it is a horrible, painful thing to go through. But I promise you that it is like a loving mom giving their kid bitter-tasting medicine or a loving mom taking their kid to get open-heart surgery because otherwise you're going to die. It's like if I don't do this work, I am going to spiritually atrophy on myself while I'm in a container of recovery that's telling me it's the solution. That's like me having cancer, going to a chemotherapy clinic and sitting in the waiting room and not going in and getting the chemo. And then it's like, okay, but then I go in and get the chemo and chemo fucking sucks. I know I've seen someone go through it. Chemo fucking sucks. And can you imagine that like you're going through chemo and it's like, you're kidding me. This, this is what I have to go through? Yes. And what I call it is the purifying flames of hell. And I went through that experience and I had to go through the 12 steps again. And when I did that, I was forced to find a power greater than myself that I really did in the core of my being. Not lip service, not intellectual, but in my heart, in the core of my being, that I believed that if I stayed connected to this higher power, I would have a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I need to tell you that that came true. It absolutely does not look like what I thought it would look like, fucking at all. But what I can tell you is I have deep, true love for myself. I am not ashamed of myself, my history, my past, my personality, I don't have any shame about that. I will have shame moments, but then the love comes so quickly to regulate those shame moments that I just move on. Every single person in my life is emotionally safe for me to connect to. I have an amazing job, my boss is not perfect, but I have boundaries and I can lovingly set boundaries with her and I can lovingly talk to her about things that she does that I don't think are really kind or whatever. And she responds favorably. She's grateful for my feedback. So what it's like today is I, I just, I, in some ways my life is very small. Part of that is the pandemic. Part of that is being an introvert. Part of that is I still live with the repercussions of PTSD and I have to find ways that I can move in the world that feels safe. But in many ways, my life is so huge in the number of people who are in my life who love me and I love. It is an abundance that I could never have imagined. And it looks in a way that I could never have imagined. So um, the one thing I do want to say, because I want to just circle back to when I had that, and I'll kind of end with this. I want to circle back to that relapse. When I hit that relapse and I had to sort of, you know, my life was decimated and I had to start over. Part of what I had to do was I had to switch from attending OA to joining OA. I couldn't treat 12-step like a class anymore I had to treat it like survivors on a on an island like all right people we are here and we are here for life and you're my tribe and I need you and I know that you need me even if you don't know that and I had to start to connect To the people in the rooms and in my meetings and I had to care about them and I had to see if they were okay and I had to learn like, okay, how, how much can I care about them? Like I can care about them a lot from far away. So again, you know, a boundary is the distance between where, where. I can love myself and I can love you at the same time. So with each person finding like, how close can I get to you where I can love you and I can love myself? And for every single person, it's a little different. But I got to learn to do all of that in the rooms. And uh, Berto, thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Um, it's always a privilege a, um, to be able to speak in an OA meeting. Thank you.